Welcome to a history of the space race podcast. Episode 33, Gemini 3. You're on your way, Molly Brown. On March 23rd, 1965, just five days after the Soviet Union performed the first spacewalk during the Voshod 2 mission, NASA launched Gemini 3. Gemini 3 was the first of the manned Gemini missions that will propel the United States far ahead of the Soviets in manned spaceflight. Preparation for the Gemini 3 mission had been ongoing for some months now. The contractor, McDonnell Douglas, completed the spacecraft for the Gemini 3 mission, known simply as Spacecraft 3, nearly 14 months earlier back in December 1963. From there, NASA and McDonnell Douglas spent the next six months installing equipment onto the spacecraft. One thing to note about the Gemini program is that none of the Gemini spacecraft were identical. The equipment installed on each spacecraft was slightly different based on the stated mission objectives for each flight, whether that was rendezvous, long-duration flight, or extravehicular activities. Even the seating was slightly different in some of the Gemini spacecraft because of the different sizes of the astronauts. For spacecraft 3, McDonnell Douglas had used Gus Grissom as the model astronaut to determine seating and instrument panel placement. Being one of NASA's original astronauts, that is, one of the Mercury 7, Grissom had spent a lot of time interacting with McDonnell Douglas, which had also produced the Mercury spacecraft. Grissom became very familiar with the McDonnell Douglas engineers and continued to work closely with them on the design and construction of the Gemini spacecraft. In fact, he became so intimate with the construction of the Gemini spacecraft that it became jokingly dubbed the Gusmobile. The problem with using Gus Grissom as the model astronaut for the placement of seating, instrument panels, and windows, however, was that Grissom was actually one of the smaller astronauts at 5 foot 5 inches. So when he sat inside Spacecraft 3, he thought the placement of everything was perfect. But when his later co-pilot, John Young, who was just 2 inches taller than Grissom, sat inside the spacecraft, everything had to be adjusted for him. The situation was even worse when it came to Thomas Stafford, who would eventually be assigned to Gemini 6. Stafford stood at 6 feet tall. In order for Stafford to get inside the spacecraft, the seat and the hatch had to be adjusted. In fact, NASA realized that 14 of the 16 astronauts could not fit inside the Gemini cabin as designed based on Gus Grissom's stature, and all subsequent Gemini cabins had to be readjusted and redesigned. On February 5th, 1965, shortly after the launch of Gemini 2, 
McDonnell Douglas delivered Spacecraft 3 to Cape Canaveral. About two weeks later, on February 17th, Spacecraft 3 was placed on top of the Titan II launch vehicle and made it to the rocket. After this, final systems checkouts began over the next month, and anticipation of the launch of Gemini 3 grew. NASA selected Gus Grissom and John Young as the prime crew to fly on Gemini 3, with Wally Shearer and Thomas Stafford as their backups. Grissom had flown on the second manned Mercury mission, the suborbital flight of Liberty Bell 7. His presence on Gemini 3 would make him the first astronaut to ever return to space. That honor might have gone to John Glenn, who flew the third Mercury and first orbital American flight in Friendship 7, but he resigned from NASA in early 1964. John Young, Grissom's co-pilot, was from the second generation of NASA astronauts recruited back in September 1962 in light of the needs of the Gemini program. Despite planning the Gemini 3 mission for well over a year, the final mission goal of Gemini 3 was not set until nearly the day before the launch. Officially, the goal of the Gemini 3 mission was to demonstrate that the Gemini spacecraft had the capabilities to perform a rendezvous and long-duration missions. But NASA headquarters limited the Gemini 3 mission to three orbits, which meant the mission would only be a few hours. The reason for the limitation was that Gemini 3 was the very first manned Gemini mission, and after three orbits, the spacecraft would move outside the range of ground-based tracking stations, so that communication could not be maintained continuously. In the future, spacecraft would regularly go out of communications range while in orbit, but this seemed too risky to attempt on the very first mission. Grissom argued that the astronauts should be able to make the call about when to return, and be allowed to stay in orbit as long as they felt comfortable. That idea, however, was obviously shot down. In light of the three-orbit limit, it was unclear how Gemini 3 was supposed to demonstrate that the spacecraft had the capability to perform rendezvous or long-duration flight. Three orbits obviously would not demonstrate long-duration capability. And three orbits was not enough time to perform a rendezvous attempt using a rendezvous evaluation pod, which NASA had been planning to launch from some of the Gemini spacecraft. NASA ultimately decided that the main mission objective of Gemini 3 should be to test the thrusters, also known as the Orbital Attitude and Maneuvering System. This system would be essential for future Gemini spacecraft to maneuver, rendezvous, and dock with other spacecraft, so testing it would at least demonstrate the potential capability to perform rendezvous. During the mission, Grissom was to maneuver the spacecraft to adjust its orbit so that it would eventually re-enter the atmosphere without firing the retro rockets. 
NASA considered the maneuver to be a safety measure so that the spacecraft would eventually return to Earth due to natural orbital decay and drag from the upper atmosphere if the retro rockets failed to fire for re-entry. Gemini 3 would also include science experiments. Due to the short duration of the mission and the rather last-minute finalization of the mission objectives, NASA limited the choices for scientific experiments to ones that were off-the-shelf ready and were largely passive experiments or did not require much attention from the astronauts. Ultimately, NASA selected three experiments, two of which had been planned for the canceled Mercury Atlas 10 mission. The first experiment was to examine the combined effects of radiation and low gravity on cells. This experiment had been prompted by concerns from experiments on the Mercury flights, where the damage to cells seemed to be worse than what would have been expected from radiation exposure alone. There were two possible explanations for this. Either there was some sort of protective layer around the Earth not yet detected that blocked some of the radiation, or radiation exposure combined with low gravity somehow made the damage to the cells worse. So the goal of the experiment was to determine whether there was some sort of shield around the Earth or whether low gravity made radiation exposure worse. To do this, cells were placed inside a hermetically sealed box shielded from radiation. In a separate compartment inside that same box was a source of radiation, separated from the cells by a barrier that could be opened with a lever from the outside. Two of these boxes were made. One would stay on Earth, and the other would go to space with Gemini 3. At a designated time, the lever for the box on Earth and the box on Gemini 3 would be turned to expose the cells to the same type of radiation source for an equal amount of time. Afterwards, they would then compare the cells to determine if the ones in space were more damaged than the ones on Earth. The second experiment was to study cell growth in low gravity using cells of a sea urchin. This experiment was largely passive, requiring one of the astronauts only to turn a lever on a few occasions to release sperm that would inseminate the cells. The fact that two of the experiments were biological ones should be noted. Today, we take for granted that humans can be in space for long periods of time, and we have a constant human presence in space now on the International Space Station. But in 1965, the longest anyone had ever been in space was five days, and that was Valery Baikovsky on Vostok 5. For NASA, the best data point it had was Faith 7 during the Mercury program, which had only been in space for about a day and a half. Some biological data had to be gathered on the long-term effects of spaceflight before the weeks-long journey to the moon and back. The third and last experiment was a communications experiment. 
During re-entry, high temperatures generated by the friction of the spacecraft re-entering the atmosphere creates a plasma shield around the spacecraft. This plasma shield, basically a cone of charged particles, prevents radio signals from being sent or received by the spacecraft. NASA sought to find a way to maintain communication during this critical period of re-entry. Certainly, such communication would have been much appreciated during John Glenn's mission on Friendship 7, when an indicator light had turned on suggesting that the heat shield was loose. Or during Scott Carpenter's mission on Aurora 7, when a misaligned retrofire caused him to land 400 kilometers off course, and NASA had no idea if he even survived re-entry until the recovery teams arrived. Early studies suggested that dumping water onto the plasma shield could temporarily restore radio communications. So, for Gemini 3, NASA modified one of the landing gear door skids previously designed for use as part of the paraglider system to release bursts of water at regular intervals during re-entry. Ground stations would then check continuously to see if any radio signals could be received from the spacecraft. The last thing I need to discuss before we get to the actual Gemini 3 mission is the name of the spacecraft. Grissom decided to name the spacecraft Molly Brown. Now, this name requires a little unpacking to understand. Molly Brown refers to a woman known in life as Maggie Brown. Maggie Brown was an American philanthropist aboard the Titanic when it sank. In the Titanic movie by James Cameron, she is portrayed by Kathy Bates. You may also know her as the CEO of Sabre in the American version of the TV show The Office. In real historical life, Maggie Brown was a survivor of the sinking and famously had her lifeboat turn around to search for survivors. For this, Maggie Brown was eventually dubbed the unsinkable Molly Brown. In 1960, there was a Broadway musical based on Maggie Brown's life. In June 1964, a movie version of the musical titled The Unsinkable Molly Brown was in theaters. So during the planning of the Gemini 3 mission in late 1964 and early 1965, Molly Brown was in the popular culture and Gus Grissom had clearly been exposed to it. Grissom decided to name his Gemini spacecraft Molly Brown, because he had lost his Mercury spacecraft, Liberty Bell 7, to the ocean. Remember, he was the one involved in that controversy where the hatch prematurely blew after he landed, causing water to enter the spacecraft, and the spacecraft eventually sank. By naming the Gemini spacecraft after the unsinkable Molly Brown, this was some sort of reference to how he was not going to lose this spacecraft. NASA headquarters hated the name Molly Brown. The position from headquarters 
was that the name lacked dignity. But when Grissom told them his second choice for the name was Titanic, headquarters grudgingly backed down. But the spacecraft's official name would never be Molly Brown. Instead, the spacecraft would only be referred to as Gemini 3 with Roman numerals. That brings us back to March 23, 1965, when Gemini 3 took off with this countdown. You probably heard what sounded like an echo in that soundtrack, but that was actually an overlay of several audio tracks in one. What you heard at the beginning was the simultaneous countdown at Cape Canaveral and the Mission Control Center in Houston, which at the time of this launch was not yet up and running. So the mission was still being controlled from the site at Cape Canaveral. At the end there, you can hear someone say, you're on your way, Molly Brown. That speaker was the Capcom, or Capsule Communicator, the only one who was supposed to talk to the crew from the ground. In this case, Capcom was fellow astronaut Gordon Cooper. Liftoff was extremely smooth, much smoother than had been suggested by simulators. In fact, for Grissom and Young inside the spacecraft, the only indication that liftoff had even begun was the mission clock starting. After about five minutes, the spacecraft was in orbit, and Grissom fired the spacecraft's thrusters to move away from the booster. It had been 20 months since NASA's last manned spaceflight with Faith 7 back in May 1963, but American astronauts were now back in space. During the first orbit, the astronauts worked on shaking down the Gemini spacecraft to ensure that all equipment worked as it should. One immediate problem was the instrument panels showing a drop in oxygen pressure in the environmental control system. Other readings appeared anomalous as well. With the repeated simulator trainings, however, the astronauts' instincts kicked in. Young decided to simply switch the electrical power converter from primary to secondary for the instrument panel. As soon as he did that, all of the anomalous readings disappeared. This troubleshooting took all of about 45 seconds, and demonstrated the kind of deep familiarity with the spacecraft and problem-solving capabilities that would be needed for missions in space. Gemini 3 achieved several firsts. One of these firsts was Grissom's presence, 
marking the first time that an astronaut returned to space. A more significant first occurred when Grissom fired the maneuvering thrusters, making Gemini 3 the first spacecraft to ever maneuver in space. During the first orbit, Grissom fired the thrusters to convert Gemini 3's initially elliptical orbit into a nearly circular one. During the second orbit, he shifted the plane of the orbit, also known as its orbital inclination. During the third and final orbit, he completed the fail-safe maneuver by changing the spacecraft's orbit back to an elliptical one, so that the spacecraft could catch the atmosphere on its lowest pass above Earth and eventually re-enter naturally. The significance of Gemini 3's maneuvering had been dimmed somewhat by Soviet lies at the time that the Voshod spacecraft could maneuver in space. Today, however, we know that Gemini 3 was indisputably the first manned spacecraft to perform any maneuvers. A less dignified first was the first consumption of a corned beef sandwich in space. Prior to the launch, Wally Shearer had John Young stuff a corned beef sandwich inside his spacesuit. The sandwich had come from Wolfie's in Cocoa Beach, which was part of a small and now defunct deli chain. During the flight, Young pulled the sandwich out and offered it to Grissom. Grissom took a single bite and then put it away after crumbs began flying around the cabin. The Wolfie's corned beef sandwich incident subsequently launched a congressional investigation after Gemini 3 came home. Apparently, a few congressmen were incredibly upset. They believed that the astronauts had either ignored or ruined some medical and biological experiments by eating the corned beef sandwich rather than the space food assigned by NASA. But in fact, the space food was there just for the astronauts to evaluate taste and convenience. It was not part of any medical research. The incident forced George Miller to come out, though, and publicly say that NASA had taken measures to prevent any further corned beef sandwiches from flying into space. As for the actual science experiments to be conducted while in orbit, one of the two failed. The cell growth experiment using sea urchin cells failed when Grissom twisted the handle to begin the experiment a little too hard and broke the experiment. The other experiment to determine if the combined effects of radiation and low gravity damaged cells more than radiation alone was successful. Once the experiment returned to Earth, the data showed that, yes, some interaction between low gravity and radiation made cell damage worse. The reason for this was not yet known, but the experiment at least pointed scientists in a direction for future investigation. About four and a half hours into the mission, the retro rockets fired to bring Gemini 3 back home. During re-entry, the third experiment began. 
water came out one of the former landing gear compartments at regular intervals. During this time, ground stations were able to pick up some radio signals, suggesting that the experiment was a success. The landing itself did not go quite as well as hoped. Gemini had been designed to allow for more precise landings than Mercury by using the spacecraft's lift to adjust the exact location where the spacecraft would splash down. The lift from Gemini was not as effective as had been suggested by wind tunnel experiments, however, and the spacecraft came down 84 kilometers off target. Another problem occurred during deployment of the parachute. The main parachute deployed to slow the spacecraft down successfully. During this time, the Gemini spacecraft hangs from a single point from its nose. Shortly before splashdown, however, a second parachute also deploys. This results in the spacecraft being suspended from two points and causes the spacecraft to tilt in the air. It was when this second parachute deployed that the spacecraft tilted forward and Grissom and Young both pitched into their windshield. For Grissom, the impact was so hard that the faceplate on his spacesuit cracked. After splashdown, Grissom and Young saw water on their windshield. They realized that the water was coming up the side of the spacecraft because the wind was dragging down one of the parachutes, forcing the spacecraft to pitch down at an angle into the water. Grissom, recalling the loss of Liberty Bell 7 for a moment, hesitated and then hit the switch to release the parachute, and the spacecraft righted itself. Again recalling the loss of Liberty Bell 7, Grissom refused to open the hatch of Gemini 3, despite the heat inside the sealed spacecraft. He and Young sat inside the spacecraft for 30 minutes, bobbing up and down quite a bit in the ocean while they waited for a helicopter to arrive. Grissom would not open the hatch until Navy divers arrived to attach a flotation collar around the unsinkable Molly Brown. With that, the Gemini 3 mission came to an end, with all major mission objectives completed. In an unprecedentedly rapid turnaround, in just a little over two months, NASA will launch Gemini 4 and perform the first American spacewalk. More about that next time.